0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it.
1: Now, here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. This is Dr. Mark Shapiro. Um, As as most of my listeners know, what we really try to do in this space is to dive into issues that have contemporary uh, implications and our challenging questions that we're dealing with now, uh, both for healthcare providers and those who are interested in seeking healthcare. But I also like to dive into our shared history, our shared past, and find important lessons and important personalities who've contributed to that uh, that really vital connective tissue um, that we all share in, whether we know it or not or appreciate it or not. And my guest today is really just a custom fit uh, to discuss these sort of issues. Dr. Jim Muller is a cardiologist. Uh, who has had an illustrious career in academic medicine. But in the 80s, he did some really remarkable and unique work as one of the founding members for a group called the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And this is a group that in 1985 actually won a Nobel Peace Prize for its efforts. Uh, since then, he's gone on to have a, an amazing career as an academic cardiologist. Now he is the chief medical officer uh, and chairman of the board of directors at Infraredix. Uh so Jim, thank you so much for joining us on Explore the Space. The the historian in me is just chomping at the bit to get at this material.
0: Well, thanks, Mark. It's not every day I get to talk with an historian. So it's Absolutely. my
1: pleasure. Yeah. So the the way you and I got in touch, I think, gives a really nice context to the work that you were doing uh in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. A a, a very dear and old friend of mine who I've been friends with since we were little kids put us in touch and you know during the 80s, when you were doing this work um, with the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, at that time, my friends, a lot of our listeners, we were learning how to do things like duck and cover under our desks in school. We were watching TV shows that talked about what to do in the event of a nuclear apocalypse. These were very real fears. These were very real concerns that, quite honestly, were a big part of all of our childhood, young adulthood. For other people, a big concern is they were raising families. This was This was very real stuff. Give us just that snapshot of when did it crystallize for you as a physician that there was a need for you to not just be a physician but there was a need for you to to serve in this role as as an activist as someone to try to help turn the tide in the face of of really dire uh, concerns and and challenges I think the roots
0: of of my involvement go back to uh, nineteen sixty when I was an exchange student in Moscow. So that's during the Vietnam War. I was in Red Square, and I saw a nuclear weapon wheeled in front of me, massive thing, and I thought, my goodness, that's aimed at our homes. And uh, at that moment, I began to see nuclear weapons as real things and real problems, and uh, that got me started. Now, I didn't really do much about it until 1978, uh, when Carter was president, he was talking about putting nuclear weapons in Europe so that we could fight a nuclear war with the Russians and win a nuclear war. And I thought that's crazy. No one wins a nuclear war and physicians know that better than anyone because they can, they treat burned patients and they know what a million people, they can imagine maybe what a million burned people would look like. And I thought at that point, maybe we could get the Russian doctors to unite with us against the concept that anyone would win a nuclear war.
1: Something about this that I find incredibly interesting is you were in Moscow doing exchange student work as a cardiologist doing research there. And one of the things about that...
0: No, then I was an undergraduate medical student.
1: That's when you were an undergraduate medical student. That's right. But you were yeah. working together with physicians in the Soviet Union, correct? Right. That is something that w- when you were doing it and then as time went by, did you feel like during the sort of drumbeat around the Cold War um, and, you know, Russia is the enemy and, and these sorts of things, do you think that episodes like the ones that you had when you were there and you were collaborating and you were working together as an equal and you were learning from the things that they do, they were learning from you, was that sort of work lost in the shuffle or do you think proper attention was being paid uh to that sort of collaboration against this, you know, Enemy to the East.
0: There were many people, not in the headlines, trying to build people-to-people contact between Russians and Americans. So I think it uh, it was pretty widespread work, and I believe that it contributed to the ultimate resolution of the Cold War.
1: Do you find that when you decided – that something needed to be done and you wanted to connect with, with physicians in the Soviet Union to, to start the, the IPPNW, was that foundation important to that? Was it, was it key that you had already sort of established these relationships or do you think it would have still been able to kind of happen in a vacuum that the situation was that important that even in a vacuum that people would have come together the way you did?
0: Uh, It, it was a lot easier because we had a, a background of collaboration Uh, Senator Fulbright wrote a book about um, uh, the importance of enemies finding areas of common interest and beginning to build habits of cooperation. So we had built, by 1978, uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had built up a rather extensive medical collaboration in cardiology and other areas in cancer. I actually helped build that collaboration. So we had... Habits of working together with Russian doctors against disease. And we just shifted to collaborating together against nuclear war.
1: And when you decided to make that shift, did you find resistance? Did anyone say, no, 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 this isn't the right thing to do uh, from either side uh, or from somewhere outside of medicine?
0: Oh, yes. We were attacked from all sides. uh, And uh, we were called dupes of the communists and of course there were Russian militarists who didn't like the Russian doctors speaking against nuclear weapons. Uh, It was not an easy path.
1: What was that first meeting like? The The first
0: meeting uh, took place with, um, there were three of us, uh, Americans, Dr. Bernard Laun, who was a full professor, and I was a junior faculty, so he was the Really, the leader of the group, um, Bernard Lown, Eric Shivian, and myself, met in Geneva in 1980 with Brezhnev's doctor, Dr. Eugene Chazov, and uh, two other physicians, Russian physicians, and we spent we spent a full day fighting with each other about uh, how bad they were at that time. They had invaded Afghanistan. Uh, yes, they told us we were terrible the way we treated uh, African Americans in the U.S. And uh, after we fought for a while, uh, we agreed that we would differ on many things, but we would come together on a single issue of prevention of nuclear war.
1: Now, do you think it was the size of the issue that you were dealing with that helped you say, all right, we, we are going to disagree on certain things, but we, our priority is so large that it's f- totally reasonable and rational to just go ahead and set these things to the, to the side, that these are not germane to our current conversation? Yeah. Yes. Yes. How, how, how does that meeting even start? Uh, I I just, I don't think I'm ever going to be in a room for a meeting like that. How does that conversation even begin?
0: Uh, it began because Dr. Bernard Lowne knew Dr. Chazov. He had met him in the, uh, health collaboration I mentioned. And, uh, Chazov had also been my teacher in, when I was in medical school in Moscow. So we had these personal relationships. Uh, we've subsequently been told that Chazov went to Brezhnev and asked Brezhnev if he could begin this work against nuclear weapons with American doctors, and Brezhnev said he would support him.
1: Brezhnev was the the, the leader of the, of the Soviet Union at the time. Yes, yeah. yes. And now... As you move forward, was there fanfare? Was there publicity? Obviously, this is the pre-internet era. Is this something that people knew was happening? Is it something that happened behind the scenes?
0: So at the beginning, it it was covered extensively by the press. You know, Russian and American doctors meet, decide to work against nuclear war. Michael Kinsley in the uh, New Republic made fun of us. He said... Take two aspirin and avoid nuclear war uh, <laughs> it, it was all it was all talked about, and uh, you know they had quite a bit of press and then we quickly spread uh, within about three years. we had a hundred thousand doctors in fifty nations who were all working on this
1: same topic so was that one of the initial goals then was that was it to sort of build a foundation of physician engagement really to yes yeah okay and and, and how did you how did you involve physicians from around the world what role did the individual physician in san francisco or antwerp or geneva or moscow what role did they have to play in the early 80s as the as the organization grew
0: so as you mentioned uh, in the early 80s there was a lot of talk about winning a nuclear war and uh Re- president reagan had just been uh, elected in 1980 and there was uh palpable fear among many people that we would have a a nuclear war so when physicians heard about what we were doing they joined in massive numbers and uh, you know it's one of the great things about the medical profession they're very selfless people that will step forward to help for health of the world and before we knew it there were physicians organizations starting in many countries Uh, the one in the u.s was called physicians for social responsibility and it was headed by Dr. Helen Caldicott, who was a great popularizer of this problem. Uh, and we ended up running a federation of national movements.
1: When you saw it start to grow, was the rate of growth, was the rate of physician engagement, was the way you were regarded around the world, What was? did it meet your expectations? Did it exceed them? Where did this sort of land as the organization grew and physicians kind of came aboard? It
0: exceeded our expectations. It went faster than we could manage. Uh, we had no office. it was pre internet. We had cables uh, to these different countries and uh, I, I remember I was teaching cardiovascular pathophysiology to the med students, and they asked why I was gone one day and I said I was you know invited to New York to do something on this movement. And they volunteered to help us set up an office above a drugstore at the Harvard Medical School. So we were always scrambling to try to keep up with the rapid growth of the movement.
1: It, It seems like this is the sort of movement that does tap into something. And maybe it's part of what draws people to not just medicine, but draws people to a career where they can be of service, whether it's, you know, public service in the fire department or a police officer or going into the military or or something like that, that do you think that there's some connective tissue there that this sort of thing, when you see this sort of call to action, was there something that you were tapping into that, that kind of moves through the the issue that there's something more substantive, more sort of like a central dogma?
0: Yes. I mean, it was a calling for people. They would set aside what they were doing and they would join this. And uh, it was marvelous because it was a higher calling and people were looking above their own personal interest to try and serve humanity.
1: And, and as the movement grew and publicity grew, and uh, did you ever have a sense or were you ever told of how far the ripples were going and how high up sort of the chain of command the ripples were going? Obviously, you already had access to Brezhnev's physician. Did you... Did you guys have access to the White House? Did you? Were, were, how far did this did this go um, as, as it as it grew?
0: So we sought access to the White House. That was my job, mm-hmm. and I eventually got through to Doctor Ruggie, uh, who was Ronald Reagan's doctor. So I ended up in the White House talking to Ruggie, and I said we'd like a letter of support from Ronald Reagan uh, that uh, nuclear war is not a winnable and dr ruby eventually i think it was by we had an annual congress i think it was about our third or fourth congress probably in 84 um president reagan sent us a letter that said nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought and uh, these were our words that we had been trying to plant for four years
1: so we were quite satisfied by that and what happened with that letter uh, that would have been an well, interesting thing we read thing it at the to Congress, yeah. and it,
0: it was spread throughout the world by the news media.
1: Wow! And what was the uh, what was the ripple effect of that letter? And where is that letter well, now?
0: I think, <laughs> I, I think you know it's in the archives of okay. the organization, which persists. Wonderful. Uh, I think that we, you know, while people say, "Well, we helped um, with the managed Cold War problems," that, that unfortunately, the nuclear war problem is not gone away it will never go away yes uh, yes. because the knowledge of how to build the weapons is permanent and technology is making it easier to build them so this uh the concept that nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought is i think that's what we helped establish in the collective psyche
1: do you think that without the work that you personally were doing and the rest of your organization to to work with the White House, and do you think that that sort of a letter would have ever been written? Do you think that Reagan would have ever made that sort of a public statement?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Because w- the other thing we did is that we were active in teaching about nuclear weapons before the nuclear freeze movement or before uh, the big march in New York of a million people in 83. We stimulated public movement. Uh, you know, the physicists had been talking against nuclear weapons for decades, and the public doesn't isn't used to visiting their local physicist, but they are <laughs> yeah. used to visiting their local doctor. So we think that the a physicist told me this. He said you physicians help stimulate public consciousness.
1: Is that something that that's a really interesting point, this this idea that physicians can stimulate public consciousness? Is this something that physicians are still able to do? I mean, obviously I th- I, I think they are. Do you think though yeah. that there are things where physicians can push the accelerator better or differently than any other group.
0: Well, I think on this survival of nuclear war uh, that you can't survive it. I think the physicians were very well qualified to say Mm. that, and they did it better than other groups.
1: And then you find out that, then you find out that you've been awarded the Nobel peace prize. How does, how does, how does that happen? How do you get that letter?
0: So by 1984, um, I had been, as you mentioned, junior faculty cardiologist. I had uh, three children, and I was trying to help run a world movement, and I was exhausted. Had I continued those three things, I would have been, I've decided I would have been fired, uh, divorced, and estranged from my children. So in 84, I quit the movement, and Dr. John Pastore took over my role. So in '85, when we won the, the prize, uh, John Pastore called me and said, "Jim, we've won the Nobel Peace
1: Prize." Oh my gosh! I don't think I'll ever experience that. I don't think many of our listeners listeners will experience that. What does that what 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 does that feel like? What is the neurotransmitter surge that happens when you get that phone call?
0: Well, it was very very exciting. Uh, we, uh, it, you know, because we were cause oriented, we weren't looking for praise Uh we were trying to get people on our side so we thought this is a big boost for the cause so we were added we had an added thrill I went down to the Harvard Medical School uh, auditorium there was a press conference and uh, I was up on stage about 30 press were there and at the same time I was doing research on triggers of heart attacks and there uh, was a physician from Australia uh, in the room He had been up all night measuring uh, platelet activity in, in volunteers to see if it increased in the morning when we knew heart attacks increased in the morning. So while I was answering these questions about nuclear weapons and how many we had and why we were doing this and could we trust the Russians, I saw Jeff Toffler walk in the back of the room and I put my thumb up or my thumb down to see if the platelets were more or less active on the volunteer he'd just done that night. And he showed me a thumbs up, and that proved that was like the sixth patient where, where we'd found that. And then that eventually became a New England Journal publication on heart attacks being more frequent in the morning, partly because platelets are more active in the morning. So my two lives uh, connected yeah. in the press conference <laughs> and the cardiology prevention work.
1: That That is quite a, that's quite a morning. And, and the same thing happened though, as well, when you were at another conference as part of the, the Nobel peace prize, um, I guess promotion and where another colleague actually suffered a cardiac arrest.
0: Yeah. So what happened there, uh, as I said, this whole thing sounds very glamorous, but it was really miserable. And one uh, at the press conference uh, where Dr. Lowne was up on stage and Dr. Chazov, the presidents, co-presidents, uh, they were, it was right the day before the Nobel Prize was going to be awarded and uh, we thought people would be very pleased. Actually, we knew we'd be attacked. So we got attacked by ABC News, television, and uh, they said to Lowne, uh, you're a miserable group of American fools who are working with Russian doctors who are persecuting Jewish dissidents and uh, sending them to psychiatric hospitals unfairly. Now, we were aware that that was going on and we fought it privately. And I actually helped with Elena Bonner, Sakharov's wife's EKG. So we'd, we'd been working on the problem. But if we started publicly working on that, the Russians would attack us on something, and we wouldn't be able to maintain our single focus. So Lown said, we don't agree with these Russians on many things. We want to prevent nuclear war. Then they started uh, attacking him again, and a Russian television correspondent hit the floor. And uh, I looked at him. I was running a coronary care unit at the time. Uh, He was gray, and he had no pulse, so I gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And then the uh, hotel had an endotracheal tube, and we intubated him. And while we were waiting for the uh, ambulance, uh, I noticed that there was an American doing the ambu bag breathing and an American pounding on the chest, and it was all on world television. And I said to uh, one of the Americans, I said, you should let a Russian help with this, and uh, they did. And that, at that moment, the cameras all went off—still uh, cameras—to uh, show that an American and a Russian were combining to save a life, which was a metaphor for the movement.
1: You just couldn't—you couldn't make that up. It's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, its hard to believe that that sort of thing would actually have happened. Um, I,
0: I wanted actually, to. The, uh, the TV people said they thought maybe the Russians had staged it.
1: Really. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you? What happened to the to the person who had who had, had the arrest?
0: So um, when I wrote this up in the New England Journal of Medicine, it's called uh, Cardiopulmonary CPR in the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. Ugh. But uh, what ha- what happened was that uh, the ambulance was late. And they finally came. and They shocked him. Nothing happened. So they wanted to pronounce him dead. And then I got in an argument with them about trying to shock him a couple more times, which they did, and then he came back. And then I rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital. And uh, the next day, he was intubated but alert. And uh, I met him a year later. His uh, CNS was fine.
1: That is amazing. So his neurological function had returned completely. Yes. That is just incredible. That is just incredible. Let's let's draw a little bit on these experiences. We 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 touched on this, and you've mentioned it, that there's this – Calling this idea of there are things that are larger that we need to rise up to, um, and that sometimes physicians are uniquely positioned to do this, but lots of other groups are and you know I think in the in the era of social media, in the time that we live in now, there are any number of, of things that we can be drawn to. Where is the role of the of the physician in this? Where is the role of the everyday person in this in terms of finding a calling, finding a cause, uh, and, and kind of diving in with both feet. As someone who did it before on more than one occasion, where, where is that now? Well,
0: I think it's still there. I mean, look, look at the people that are responding to contemporary issues, like Black Lives Matter, like the environment. Look at the wonderful Pope who's now <laughs> taking on the environmental problems. I mean, I, I think there's still plenty of uh, activity for common goals, big goals.
1: Do you think that the role of the, where does the role of the physician fit in? I, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking, what do you think society should expect from its community of not just physicians, but of people involved in healthcare? What should society, should society expect something like the IPPNW for a different cause? Is that reasonable and fair? Is it something that should happen organically? Uh, what would you, th- what would you think about that sort of thing growing again?
0: Well, one of the, I mentioned Dr. Eric Shivian. He's a person you may want to interview. Uh, he was essential to the building of IPPNW, and he took that, you know, broader calling of a physician and applied it to the environment. So he's, uh, he's formed a group called Physicians for the Prevention of the Natural World. So it's PPPNW again, and uh, he, is, he has educated members of Congress about the health effects of environmental change.
1: And, and what would be the next sort of if you were going to do this all again, uh, if you were going to organize, harness, corral you know, physicians, medical students, nurses, healthcare executives, anybody? What would be the thing that you think would galvanize those involved in healthcare the most? What would be that topic that could really draw that hundred thousand very very quickly to be involved and to sign up?
0: You know, I don't. I don't really operate that way. Uh-huh. Um, I don't. I don't try to build a big organization, or try to be head of it. I I wait for a call. I respond to a problem, uh-huh. and so I would start more with what problem, uh, what problems are out there, uh-huh. uh, rather than how could we rally a lot of people. Uh, I the problems. Some of the new ones that bother me are what What is the effect of uh, of the internet and social media, and on in terms of isolation of people, and uh, what's it effect, its effects on indi, you know individual relationships and all of that. That seems like a serious issue to me. Yeah. Uh, and I I guess the other issue that I mentioned is the environment that we need something to do with that. Uh, the the larger issue that that I'm concerned about that I don't see anyone talking about is the one of world order. Uh, we've got world problems, we've got pollution, we've got, uh, you know, the conflict with ISIS, and uh, these. you can run down the list of world problems, yeah. but we are organized on a basis of nation-states, and with individual sovereignty being primary. Um, I'm more, much more interested in building some world structures that can, can deal with world problems.
1: That would be an interesting thing as well to see if, uh, you know, the, the, clearly the challenges are myriad and to see how those things will galvanize people, I think will be really interesting. Obviously, one of the other big pursuits that you've had, and they, they obviously intertwined, was dealing with the the effects of coronary artery disease. And I do want to touch on that just a little bit. I think that there we, we also talk a sure. lot on this podcast around issues around healthcare technology and how things are changing and it's it's funny to see how your worlds have not moved in parallel. They've really moved in series, this intertwining of, you know, vascular disease, blood vessel disease, sudden cardiac death, while also your role as an activist. These things are so inextricably linked. Where I know that you're doing some really interesting and, and, and kind of cutting-edge work in this field, and obviously this is also a primacy of concern for a lot of people in terms of preventing cardiovascular disease. We've talked a lot about technology on other podcast episodes uh, in Explore the Space. So what are some of the things that you're seeing kind of come together with, that people can can engage with in terms of prevention of cardiovascular disease, screening for cardiovascular disease?
0: Yes. Yeah, so that's my uh, my main job right now, of course. And I guess I start with the fact that it's uh, coronary disease is the leading cause of death in the world. It's 7.4 million deaths per year. And the peculiar thing about coronary disease is it's not a mystery. Uh, we know that it's caused by cholesterol plaques, and we know that those plaques rupture, and a clot forms, causes a heart attack. Uh, so we understand the pathophysiology, uh, and we actually have a lot of good treatments. We have antithrombotics, and we've got anti-cholesterol, you've got stents, scaffolds, all kinds of things. Uh, but what's missing is diagnostic, so you can go you know, as a physician, you know, you can put someone on a treadmill, they can pass it, but they don't have any narrowings, but they can have a hidden plaque that can rupture, they can have an infarct the next day. So these plaques we've called vulnerable plaques, ones that might rupture. And uh, I've spent the last 17 years trying to build an instrument to find the vulnerable plaques. Now, fortunately, the instrument is now built, and it looks like it's going to work. Uh, we have a 1,282 patient study in process that will give us an answer in six to nine months uh, on can we find vulnerable plaques. Uh, once we do that, uh, we're already planning treatment trials uh, as to how we would treat these plaques, but I, I don't think treatment is the problem. The problem is finding the needle in the haystack first.
1: And have you found that as technology has rapidly evolved you know just even over the course of my life and seems to certainly be accelerating you've been involved in 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 research for for many many years are you noticing that it is easier faster more efficient to do this sort of research and to you know test a hypothesis now than it was 20 30 40 years ago um or is it still kind of the same rigor
0: it's far easier to to move science forward now you know, we're working closely with colleagues in Scandinavia. They're running a big trial for us, and we have our email exchanges. So we wouldn't have been close to doing anything like that uh, two, two decades ago.
1: And so as we move forward... It'll probably get easier and easier. People are going to have more and more access to this sort of thing. Is that something that as a as an academician, as an activist, as a physician, and just as a member of of society, is that something that excites you? Is it something that you have some some cautions around? Is it something that you think is on balance a positive?:
0: I think it's on balance a positive. I alluded earlier to the fact that I don't like to see four people sitting around a table all looking at their own cell phones.
1: Yeah so in terms of the 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 work that we're going to be seeing in medicine and how fast things are changing in the world of medicine um and it's just it's undeniable you just have to read the newspaper you know see what's happening uh at at the apple store or at google or what or 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 in a hospital uh as someone who's been involved in these sorts of things on many on many different levels um give give us your sort of sense of of the impact that this is going to have as we move forward
0: Well, technology is a two-edged sword, and it's increased our power for good and for evil. Uh, So I think, you know, the nuclear weapons are going to get easier to make Mm -hmm. uh, for the same reasons we just talked about. And uh, it will be easier for someone to make centrifuges because they can do solid works and uh, plan it on a computer. So we've got both sides of this sword to deal with, the one that... uh, and that will be the struggle to use so the good forces can stay ahead of the evil ones.
1: I, I think that's just a really wonderful theme to wrap this up on. You've had this amazing career of this juxtaposition of, you know, the forces that can do great harm and also forces that can do tremendous good. Uh, and it's, yep. it's been an amazing career. Hopefully the book is coming. Hopefully the autobiography will be forthcoming and we can all enjoy it.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, some people have told me that I should write some of this up. So there are two books. There is one book called uh, uh, Prescription for Survival, written by Dr. Bernard Lowne, L-O-W-N, that describes all of the nuclear thing quite well. And then I wrote a book about the Catholic. We didn't talk about the organization I built against uh, child abuse by Catholic priests. And that organization, I wrote a book called Keep the Faith, Change the Church, about that work, but there is no book about the uh, coronary work.
1: Well, well, hopefully someday you'll be able to put uh, put the seminal volume together that that helps sort of summarize all the amazing adventures and work and challenges that you've dealt with in your career. Um, yes. th- this really does it. The, the work that you were doing in the in the '80s it resonates today uh, in the '70s and '80s all the way up to today. And there, I think that the points that you've made, particularly around you know that double edged sword of technology, that really resonates. The idea of You know when you when you have to solve a problem that there may be some differences to set aside if the key problem is so big that it demands full attention and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and sort of elucidate some of these challenges and issues and draw on this experience that we all really remember it was it's it's a very vivid thing to have grown up in that nuclear age so thank you so much for coming and sharing all of your your adventures and stories and ideas with us
0: well thank you mark for the interview thank you for listening to explore the space